Gary David, and welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Adam is traveling this week, so I am handing the intro duties all by myself. Our guest today is Josh Linkner, and he's had a pretty varied set of experiences that led him to writing his latest book, Big Little Breakthroughs. In fact, he describes himself as being a strange mix of things. From an early age, he picked up guitar, and that's not necessarily notable as lots of young kids pick up guitar. However, his interest led him to focus on jazz guitar, resulting in him even attending the Berklee School of Music right here in Boston. But his journey didn't end there, as he ended up transferring to the University of Florida to study business, as well as guitar. Afterward, he found himself drawn towards being a tech startup entrepreneur, having a number of successful businesses, and, as he describes it, plenty of failures. From there, he has become a well-known and much-sought-after professional speaker and venture venture capitalist investor, talking to audiences across industries, as well as helping companies find their innovative spark. With his company, Platypus Labs, he helps organizations become more creative and innovative. And his company, Three Ring Circus, provides a framework through which he shares his experiences on being a professional speaker, helping others who want a similar journey to find their path. The author of four books, Josh and I talk about what it means to be innovative and how little things and little changes, and even small insights, can lead to dramatic transformations. From his fascination with the video game Frogger, to our conversation on the need for change in our educational system, we explore the potential for creativity in all aspects of our lives, filling what he calls the creativity gap in organizations, and how Detroit, where I'm from, serves him as the hub of his innovative approach and spirit for renewal. After personally reading all of his books and really enjoying them, I highly recommend all of them, it was great to finally get a chance to sit down and chat with Josh. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Southfield Lathrop High School. Southfield Lathrop. I don't know if I ever knew anybody who went to Lathrop High School. Where's that located? 12 mile on Evergreen. See, with Matt and I, we almost got into trouble because he went to Catholic Central. Ah. And I went to De La Salle and I went, at least it's not Brother Rice. At least yep, we, don't that's to, right. we don't have to do that repair work. So Southfield Lathrop is, is, is acceptable. I've, you know, I, I spent so little time on the West Side, it almost feels like a different world. Once I cross Woodward, I'm like, I'm not quite sure where anything is. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it is. But, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, being a big fan of Detroit. And I don't know if that ever leaves you, right? I mean, I've, I've lived outside of Detroit now since 1999. But it's still like, the, I, I really don't go back very often, but it's still the place I identify with the most. And I often wondered if it's just a matter of like where we grow up, we're just connected to, or if it's something about that place that makes us feel more connected to it. It's a good question. My, my opinion is that there's something special about this place because, you know, you meet people in California and like, oh yeah, where are you from? California. Well, where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Arizona like that. I don't think that they have the same kind of like, it's like part of who you are. It's almost like this badge of honor that you're from Detroit. I know it just, you're right. It stays with you. I think, I think so. And, you know, I think part of it is also from a sociological perspective, anytime you're the target of any kind of negative sentiment that can only increase your identification with that thing. It's like, I'll show you. You're going to say all these bad things about Detroit. You know, I'm willing to retrench myself into being a Detroiter more and be proud of it. But I think it's also like this notion you talk about of like the ingenuity and the, you know, not just with the auto industry, but the reinvention, right? Yeah. I mean, as you know, Detroit is in the midst of this massive revitalization. I, I believe it'll be studied for decades to come as one of the greatest turnaround stories in American history. And it's, you know, it's funny, like a hundred years ago, Detroit was the Silicon Valley of our country. Right. And I feel like we lost our creative way. And instead of building cool cars, we started administering bureaucratic corporations. And, and I feel like we lost our creative mojo and, and many of the problems that ensued were a direct result of that. But now I feel like the city is getting its 
creativity back. And it's really cool to see. I mean, there's not just the big companies, but lots of little ones. There's startups, there's art galleries and new restaurants. And right. this is still, we have a long way to go. It's no utopia, but it's, it's definitely moving in the right direction. Did you ever see the documentary uh, about not, not standing in the shadow of Motown, not that one about the Funk Brothers, but the one that was on just Motown in general? I mean, it had Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson just kind of went from the origins through its movement to California. Do you know what I'm talking about, that documentary? I haven't seen the documentary, but I've been to the Motown Museum. And so I've walked through that story in great depth and studied right. it quite a bit. And it's it's fascinating. Basically, Barry Gordy worked at Ford and he saw how they did the assembly line to produce cars quickly. And he said, I wonder if I could create an assembly line to produce stars. Right. And the, the whole place was engineered, right? You know, they bring in raw talent on one end and spit out superstars on the other. One of the things about that story that really fascinates me and it's made me think about with, with your new book is the fact that so much music education was in the Detroit public school system at that time. And so besides you know, music being permeating around, you know, the culture of Detroit, but there was a lot of music, music education and very formal orchestration music education. And it made me think about also how when we lose that, our music programs, we lose a vital part, but also the fact that if you want to teach people how not to be creative, send them to school. Hmm. Because I know from a college perspective, we can talk about it the lack of creative impulse or encouragement is really marked. So I guess, you know, it's a longer thing about music education in Detroit leading up to the emergence of Motown and what we lose when we lose that part of our education in terms of creativity. Yeah. Well, two different, really both important points just on the Motown thing. First, you know, I would argue that, you know, when you look at all these people who were, became the legends that we know today from, you know, Stevie Wonder to, to Aretha Franklin. And like these people all live within a couple square blocks of one another. Right. I would, so you'd say, well, what, why was that in the water? I would say that that the, what really made those people who they are today was not their natural talent. It was their development. And right. because Barry Gordy was there and he had a system, a sort of a systematic approach to cultivate those skills, they became the legends that we celebrate. In other words, if Barry Gordy was in Cleveland, I bet he would have found the Aretha Franklin of Cleveland. Right. And so to me, creativity is the same way. You know, we often look at people who are wildly creative as if they were born that way. And the truth is that creativity is much more like your weight than your height. You know, try as I may, I'm not going to grow a foot and a half by next month, but my weight I can control based on my behavior. And creativity is the exact same thing. I would argue that, right. you know, the, the, the legends from, you know, um, uh, Marvin Gaye on up, uh, like that, that could have been elsewhere. But, but what really made them superstars was that they were in a system that created it. Right. Did you ever hear about a place called the Attic Bar in Hamtramck? I have heard of the Attic Bar in Hamtramck. So I, I used to go there in high school um, to go to the blues jam sessions. So I, play, I, I picked up harmonica when I was in high school, just on my own. And so I'd go down to these jam sessions in, in the attic. With the, there was a guy named Uncle Jesse White and the Butler Twins and these other kinds of individuals. And what was really remarkable was, number one, the intermixing of culture in an, like this little hole-in-the-wall establishment that really was important in the community and in terms of music and, and how I was able to learn from people who were from the South, from Mississippi, from Alabama, from Georgia, from wherever, but also the fact that you had these musical influences mixing in this environment where people were just coming together and making music. And so the idea of the system and the opportunity to be creative, the intermixing of influences and not trying to be what rigid in, in, in an approach, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, furthermore, diversity of all types drives creativity. Right. Diversity of thought, background, age, geographic, all, all types drives diverse uh, creativity. We're talking music, <coughs> excuse me, but let's say we were in a band and there were five guitar players. Right. How awful is that? You know, and so in this case, like diversity of musical instruments makes the song better. And the same is true in creativity in general. So anytime we're trying to get more creative, I think it's really nice to have a broader set of minds and experiences coming together as opposed to a more narrow path. One of the areas I do some work in and I've done some programs on is diversity. Um, we're actually proposing a new diversity, equity, and inclusion major at my school that I was involved in creating. And it's interesting when, when companies and organizations approach diversity and DEI and J and justice, it's often done from this checkoff or moralistic approach, which is, you know, more morality is important, but they don't often, I don't think, and I'm curious about your experiences, approach it from a strategic advantage perspective. You know, it's like something we have to do or we should do or we ought to do or people expect us to do, but not something we need to do to maintain our competitive edge because 
by doing so, as you're talking about, we can maintain our creativity, our innovation, and our forward momentum. Yeah, I mean, the real answer is we should do it for both reasons. I mean, right, we, right. we ought to have more diversity in, of all types. And it's separately, in addition, it also drives productivity. So I think there's a double win there. And you're right that we generally focus on the first as opposed to the latter. But the other thing you said real quickly, though, is you're talking about education. And I was, this is a really hot button topic for me right. because, you know, our kids go to school and you, you want them to become, you know, these vibrant, flourishing adults that are ready for the world. And, and I feel like we're sort of doing the opposite mm-hmm. and, and it's not teacher's fault. Teachers are heroes, but we have an outdated system. There's it right. is, is desperately needing systemic change. And it's been said that kids enter kindergarten with a full set of colorful crayons and they graduate with a single blue ballpoint pen. And, and I worry that, you know, the, the most needed skills in the, in the workforce and in life are creative problem, problem solving and inventive thinking, the soft skills, quote unquote, whereas the hard skills that we used to think were important have now become automated and outsourced and commoditized. Right. And so I just worry that we're going to create a whole generation of people that are sort of ill-equipped to meet the challenges of the day. You know, it's, it's, it's a confounding thing for me. And I have some ideas. I'd be curious to hear yours. Everything you're saying, you know, and as your book talks about, all these business leaders will say creativity is the most important thing. We need creative thinkers. We need critical thinkers. A big thing that most, I, I don't see many professional development programs on critical thinking. Everyone knows these things are important, but yet there seems to be this, this real barrier to actually making that happen, either in the educational system or in organizations. People will say, we want you to be creative, but make sure you also do it our way. You know what I mean? So like, I was kind of curious in your interviews with folks and in your own work with Platypus Labs and whatnot, why do you think that is? What's the, what is that, that lock that prevents people from actually living these statements? I think it's, a, you know, ages and ages of evolution. I mean, we, we as human beings have a negativity bias, so we tend to focus on, you know, avoiding problems and risk rather than finding new possibilities. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you have often well-intentioned parents and bosses and teachers that are trying to look out for us and help us guide us the right way. And, you know, I mean, I have four kids of my own and you say, would you guide, say, okay, yeah, get a college degree, do what you're supposed to do, you know, but, but I think ultimately when we, when we follow uh, somebody else's path, we're really robbing ourselves of what's possible and our true calling. And, and then the ironic thing is those, think about those that we celebrate. Right. Whether it's Steve Jobs or you know Muhammad uh, Gandhi or, or or Martin Luther King or, or anybody like that, these are people that didn't follow the rules. They forged their own path. They injected right. a creative approach. So I think if we really want to achieve, if we really want to make our mark, I, I think it's it's mission critical, frankly. But again, it, it gets back to, I mean, I've, I've thought about this often. So in middle school, I'm sure you did the same. I learned how to do long division by hand. Right. So I don't mean to be boastful in any way, but but I've started, built, and sold five companies. I've helped 100 startups get off the ground. Right. I've hired 10,000 people over the years. I've done multi-hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions, buying and selling companies, raising capital. I have never once in 30 years in business <laughs> used long division by hand. Right. Meanwhile, what didn't we learn in middle school? Why not? Why don't they? I've thought about this. Why don't they have a course in middle school, mandatory course said called Making Mistakes? Right. What's a good mistake versus a bad one? What's a responsible risk versus an irresponsible risk? How do you bounce back? How do you build resiliency? What could you learn from mistakes? So I just think that we have a, a, a curriculum and a systemic problem that is in desperate need of reform. I couldn't agree anymore. And you know, I know some companies do things like create like a failure wall. I think in one of your books, because I've actually read all of your books, um, they have, you know, you talk about that as well. Like, you know, putting our, our successes on a wall, but putting our failures on a wall too, because they're emblematic of not only trying and also we can learn from those mistakes, but it also speaks to culture that people, I mean, it is a really strong sense of organizational con- culture and comfort that people think they can fail and they won't get canned or, you know, not promoted or things like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, the discourse you talked about earlier, people say, oh, go be creative. They hire brilliant minds and then never let them use them. Uh, I think that that needs to change. And so when you think about uh, a greenhouse, for example, a greenhouse is a, is a perfect ideal conditions to grow plants. Right. But I think a primary role of leadership is to create a perfect ideal conditions to foster creativity. If mm-hmm. you have 10,000 employees, why should only 16 of them be creative? Why not all 10,000 of them? Again, in their own appropriate ways. I'm not suggesting that people should draw all, all over the walls with purple crayons, but, but they can be creative in the context of their work, which will elevate their organization's success. And so I, one, one key way to do that is to create rituals and rewards. So in in my new book, which you know you were talking about, uh, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small yep. 
everyday innovations drive oversized results. Um, I cover the stories. And so the, the whole premise of the book is it's sort of like innovation for the rest of us. It encourages people, instead of swinging for the fences with wild, risky, irresponsible ideas, to cultivate small micro-innovations, big right. little breakthroughs, little daily acts of creativity. So anyway, in the book, instead of covering Netflix and Apple, which we already know all about, I tried to find really interesting people. I did I did interview CEOs and billionaires and such, but um, one of the guys that jumps to mind is, is a uh, nonprofit leader in the UK um, named Trowan Resterick. Anyway, he has a ritual. Like, how do you encourage people to get their creativity forward? One thing you do is remove the fear because fear and right. creativity cannot coexist. So here's what Trowan does. Every Friday, they do something called F Up Fridays. Hmm. He says the whole word. I'll just be right. you know, PG here. But so F Up Fridays, he brings all 50 some employees together, big brown bag lunch thing. And they go around. Each person stands up and proudly shares what did they F up that week and what did they learn from it? And when they get to somebody that didn't F something up that week, he's like, well, why not? What would right. you try next week? <laughs> and so the simple ritual reinforces that responsible risk-taking risk is part of the gig, that part of your core responsibility is to be a daily innovator. And right. I think when leaders view their role and their responsibility as cultivating and, and harnessing the creative, creative abilities of their team, that's when organizations become unstoppable. Right. I, I, one of the things I appreciate about that, and I've said this when I've given talks on it, I'm like, if you, if you call people managers, they will, right? Mm. I mean, that, that's what they will do. You know, is that the right word for what you want them to actually accomplish versus facilitators versus, you know, um, enablers? I don't know what words, right? You know, we can break out a thesaurus and, and think about it. But management is often not the thing that you want them to do because of all the reasons you're laying out, because then they will. They will, they will fulfill that label to the best of their ability and the results you get will be the results you get. Yeah. You know, people ask me, what's my title frequently? And I say creative troublemaker. Right. And, you know, what it always begs a conversation, but obviously I don't mean doing things that are destructive or hurtful to others, but I mean, I'm my whole part of what I'm supposed to do is shake things up and find new possibilities and challenge conventional wisdom and stick my finger in the eye of traditional thinking. And so, yeah, I'm a creative, a proud creative troublemaker, but you're right though, by the way, language. So I've been kicking around this one. I'd love your thoughts. So when we are kids, we go out to play. I play music. I've been playing music for 40 some years and you know, we play sports, but then contrast that with the word work Right. and work. It's almost like you're trading your soul for money as if you should have no enjoyment or intrinsic value whatsoever. And if you have a moment of fun, you better stop it. But meanwhile, I don't think that's the most productive approach. Certainly not in the modern age. And I've thought for a while, what if we swapped the word? What if instead of, instead of having a workforce, we had a play force? Right. What if instead of working through a problem, you played through a problem? What if you're like, hey, honey, going out to play for the day? I mean, how right. cool is that? Why not? And, and I just think that you're right. Little shifts in language and, and the way we view things can really make a meaningful impact on us and those around us. Absolutely. Backed up with actual um, changes in culture and business practice, right? Because one of the things with language is also, you know, there has to be outcome behind the intent in some, to some extent, right? So that if you have the most dreary job in the world and people talk about, okay, it's playtime, but it, nothing's changed materially, does it just create this further separation from what you're trying to achieve? Because now people just feel like what, that it's like, you know, not sincere. You know what I mean? So I, I also wonder, along with this idea of, you know, playing versus working is how do organizations you know, how do they develop the courage? And I think part of what you, what you all do with Platypus Labs and, you, and your other operations and your books, help them develop the courage to make the changes that they want to. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, one of the core things that I focus on when writing my new book, Big Little Breakthroughs, is to make people feel like this is, they, they got this. It's within their mm -hmm. grasp. You know, when we think that the face of innovation is Elon Musk, we say, good for him, but it's hard to see ourselves in right. Elon Musk. So I like the idea of everyday people being everyday innovators and that we, we all can be. And so one of the ways that we accomplish this is provide better mindsets and tactics. But the other way is that we de-risk the process. In other words, if you feel like every time you try something creative, you're betting your family's future and your company and your career, the stakes are too high. So right. let's, let's de-risk the process to make it feel much more within the grasp of all of us. And, and you're right. Though, I mean, you can't be insincere. One word alone, work right. to play, isn't going to change it. But, but if you embrace that mindset and you recognize that there can be 
productive play and that you might be able to achieve better outcomes. So that, that's the other thing that is, is often a misconception that when I say companies should be creative, someone takes it such so far. They're like, oh, but I don't want my people going crazy and right. blowing deadlines and being irresponsible. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm right. saying let's use creativity as an asset, the same way you'd use any other asset in a business to drive better results. So it's, right. it's, 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 uh, it's applied creativity for specific uh, results and, 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 and gain and, and driving better outcomes. So I actually have a story about this from your backyard. On an earlier podcast episode, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Justin Bright is, I think, is that the actual title is something like Assistant Director of Patient Experience at Henry Ford Hospital. And he's downtown in Detroit at, at the hospital there. And I interviewed him about patient experience. And I, one of the questions I asked him was, in an, uh, in an industry that's so tightly regulated, where you can't just do what you want with treatments or medis- medications or tests. How do you allow people or encourage them to be creative and innovative? And he actually had some very good things to say about, well, you find the spaces in which you can, whether it's how do you in- interact with patients? How do you work together as teams to problem solve? How do you think about um, the, you know, beyond just the, the clinical moment to the parking lot, Right. What are the overall ways in which we can make changes in an environment that's very tightly regulated? So I think that's the the moral of the story is everybody can have those spaces and opportunities to be creative and play even in the most tightly regulated, controlled kind of industries. For sure. You know, financial services is another one. And people say, well, I can't be creative. I'm in finance. And 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 I I would respectfully disagree. I'm not saying you should break a regulatory. Right. You know. You know. Obviously, you're not going to do anything criminal. But right, you can think about instead of focusing on the reasons we can't be creative, let's look for the areas where we can. And one could be client experience. Another one could be the way you hire and recruit. Another one you could use creativity for for figuring out how to be more efficient. You could right. use creativity with you know how do you better serve clients. I mean, on and on and on. So I really think that's another misconception that. Creativity only applies in product development or in marketing. Like you can only be creative if you're wearing a lab coat or a hoodie. Right. And, and the truth is, you know, this is this is a is a resource again. Think about it as an asset that yes, you can apply it toward product development or marketing, but you also can apply it to driving productivity gains in a factory or improving safety uh, outcomes on a on a construction site or anywhere in between. So the, the things that we care about, even outside business, frankly, maybe you could apply it to your health or your family or your community or your neighborhood. So the things that we care about the most, if, if we have a dormant superpower, why not bring it to the surface and deploy it so that we can, again, drive and enjoy the outcomes that we care about? Absolutely. And I want to, you, you, you're the only other person I've met besides me whose favorite video game was Frogger. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, like, I've, I've, and I don't know what your personal relationship, and in the book you talk about this, why, you know, that little frog for some reason couldn't swim. I never thought about that. When you mentioned the book, I was like, yeah, why, can't, why, why does the frog drown? It's a frog. It should be able to navigate an aquatic environment. But what was it about that game for you that made it resonate so much in, in your mind? Because I, I, can, I know why it was for me, but you're the only person I've met who liked Frogger as well during that time. Yeah, well, so guilty as charged. I'm a big Frogger fan. It was my favorite video game. And, you know, the reason I wrote about it in the book, I called it the Frogger principle. So if you haven't seen the game, anyone who's listening, you're this little frog. And as you point out, you, the frog, for whatever reason in the game, can't swim. So the, the frog's job is you're, you're the frog, you got to cross the river. Right. But you can only cross the river by hopping onto solid surfaces that are floating by in the river, like a log or a lily pad, or maybe at the back of an alligator. But but those things aren't standing still. So you have to kind of jump from one to the next to the next in order to make it to your destination. The problem is that if you jump onto solid surface and then you don't keep jumping, you fall into this raging river of death and meet your doom. Right. And I started thinking about this game, which I did love and I still love. It's kind of a big metaphor for life, isn't it? Like we're living in a big giant game of Frogger. In other words, we often think that success is a permanent condition when really it's a temporary state that's in the context of many external factors today changing at a rate like none other in history. So point is you jump on the back of that lily pad. In other words, maybe you meet your numbers for the quarter or you had a good business outcome or whatever, but you should, yeah, let's slap high five. Let's spike the ball. Let's enjoy the moment, but you can't stand in that lily pad too long. You got to then leap to the back of the next log and and the log after that. And so I think that's what we need to do as we think about not only moving forward in our lives and businesses and careers, but even in our skill sets. I think it's, 
it's incumbent on all of us to think about ourselves in a constant state of reinvention. I, I have a saying in my business. I would I repeated it so much that people got sick of hearing me say it. Is that someday a company will come along and put us out of business? So it might as well be us. You're right. And I say the same thing today about myself. Like I hope that I'm putting the Josh of today out of business, but six months from now. And and the goal of this is, is back to Frogger is like, I think it's our responsibility to always be leaping forward, trying something new, staying relevant, staying fresh, as opposed to trying to rely on a previous level of success and hoping for the best. You just made me think about a good exercise that would actually be kind of fun to watch. What if we had a Frogger game? It could be like on a computer or whatnot. And rather than having one person play it, you had four people play it as a team and try to come to a conclusion or consensus about the move forward, backwards, left or right. Pretty quickly, the frog would die because you would be stifled with indecision because you're debating what to do versus entrusting one person to make the decision based on their own judgment, you know, and, and, at home, and having a chance for success, right? I mean, that's another metaphor, right? That, you know, innovating by committee versus um, and through process versus entrusting people to react and act based on their own judgment and, and expertise. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, there's this poisonous thing called groupthink, which tends to uh, dilute the, the the impact, the potency of a strong idea. Uh, here's a fun one for you. So you, you ever get uh, Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia ice cream? Uh-huh. It's delicious. It's like this multi-billion dollar success for Ben and Jerry's. So, but here's what it is. It's, it's cherry flavored ice cream, chocolate chunks, real chunks of cherry. Awesome. Right. But here's the way that that brainstorm session would have gone down in most companies. Someone comes in, hey, I got this idea, cherry flavor Garcia ice cream. And then you got Bill over in legal. And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but those cherries, like one out of 100,000 people are allergic. We better pull them out. And then you got Sue in, in, in production. And she says, oh, yeah, you know, they get the cherry syrup in there. I got to like retool my facility. I got to train my workers. Can't we just pull that out? And then you got Ben in finance. He's like, oh, those chocolate chunks, you know, they're going to add 0.2 cents to our gross uh, pro- uh, cost structure and our unit profit's going to go down. Let's just pull those out. And what do you have left? You got a big bowl of vanilla, nothing. You have a commodity that nobody cares about, nobody wants. So I think you're right. It does sometimes require a little bit of individual boldness as opposed to be weighted down with, with the, uh, the, the, the gravitational force of groupthink. Yeah, I just, uh, I was just, you know, you triggered me a little bit um, just because recently in my own work, we were creating an innovative degree. And one of the, one of the kickbacks we got on it was, well, you didn't include enough people to which I said, well, did you want it done or did you want it to have people involved? Because you can't necessarily have both. Right. I mean, I, I, it doesn't mean just kind of go it alone, but what does mean that process itself can make it difficult for innovation to happen. Because it becomes process, it becomes about process versus innovation. Yeah, you know, key driver because collaboration actually can fuel creativity. But the key driver is using the word "what if," which you used earlier, that phrase. But how are you thinking about "what if"? Because there's really two meanings. So, in other words, I'm like, um, "Hey, what if we did this? What if we did that?" That's you're, you're imagining new possibilities without judgment. Right. But the other way is you're imagining the worst case. Right. What if I get in a car and get a car crash? What if my plane goes down? What if I get poisoned when I'm in the airport? So, so that, that, that type of what if is very negative. So it depends on the, the, the type of what if questions that are being asked, whether you should have more people or less. Because here's the positive side of it. So I'm a jazz musician. And when I play jazz, it's a real, it's a co-creation process. Right. Riff off of each other. So for example, let's say I had an idea on the guitar. I'm playing a solo. And even if it's not very good, I have an idea. But then the bass player hears it and he takes it to the next level. He goes, oh, I like what you did, but I'm going to add something to it. And then the drummer hears the rhythm and picks it up on his cymbal. And then the sax player, she hears that and rips this beautiful killer solo to the delight of the crowd. So who created that? So like, I mean, it was a co-creation process, but in that case, it worked because we were in the positive column of what ifs. We were all saying, what if we did this? What if we did right. that with music? As opposed to saying, oh my God, you stepped out of the chord structure. How could you play that scale? That note doesn't belong there. You know, call the note police. And so I think a lot of it is where we're coming from with our heart and soul as we approach the creative process, because collaboration can work if everybody is supportive and, and we're in a safe environment. I'm imagining at Berkeley, there were note police. Was that actually an official job title at Berkeley? Note police? There, there was no such thing at Berkeley. Quite, quite, quite the opposite, in fact. But, you know, funny that you say that because I've often said that fear, not natural talent, fear is the single biggest blocker of creativity. 
Right. It's that poisonous force that robs us of our ability. And, and, and truthfully, fear and creativity cannot coexist. Right. So had there been the note police at Berkeley, you would have a lot less creative output because everyone would be so worried about not making a mistake. But in my little jazz example there, you know, there was no such thing and people were free to, to explore. Even jazz itself, it's funny. If I go out and play it really safe, I'll get laughed off the stage. Sure. But if I take a creative risk and I play a bad note, a clunker, I just play it twice more and call it art. Everything is cool. So there's, the point is there's a tolerance for failure, which enables people's creativity because the fear has left the room. I must've been thinking about the Boston Conservatory. Must yes, they, they do in fact have a note police. I think they have little uniforms and <laughs> handcuffs and such, batons to smack people around. Well, it's funny. I, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, she's a middle school music teacher. She studied at the Boston Conservatory, um, you know, brass saxophone. And then she tried to learn how to play jazz. She was in a jazz quartet and she had a really hard, and she would talk about, I have a really hard time for, because of this liberation element, right? She, and I don't know if you read the book range by David Epstein. Are you familiar with this? I book? Am. It's a wonderful book. A great book. And he does a whole thing about, you know, jazz and range versus the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours um, specialization. And when I, you know, knowing your jazz background and reading through the book, it, it, that kept kind of coming back to me, the difference between you know, as you described, jazz musicians playing together and, and feeding off of each other, integrating and being inspired from who knows where versus the 10,000 hours, very narrow, strict, structured kind of performance. Yeah, here's, here's one for your friend. Do you know how, what classical musicians use for birth control? What's that? Their personalities. <laughs> Whoa. Just kidding. I'm actually That's on the shot. board uh, of advisors at the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. I love classical music. I'm only joking. But I do think there's a lesson to be learned there, you know, kidding aside. Right. So I think the old metaphor of business was that of classical music. A person standing in the center of the room was the CEO, and he or she is no longer playing their own instrument. And, and their role is all around precision and accuracy and alignment. Play those notes exactly as they're written on the page. But right. today's climate is different. Today, we live in a world of ambiguity. We live in a world of rapid change. We live in a world of where, where you have to perform, but there's not all the notes on the page in front of you. So I think a more productive mindset is that of a jazz combo. Small teams that are messy and taking risks and, and, and riff them off one another and, and allowing themselves to bob and weave through, through change. That to me is so much a better, stronger metaphor, in fact, for the business landscape that we're in today. I've been reading more and more. I've become fascinated with this area of work called complex systems and complex theory, complexity theory, because you know one of the, one of the the big elements of this, besides emergence, right? Things emerge on their own through this mix of whatever is there, is the idea of dancing landscapes, right? That a fixed landscape or a singular point versus having like a range of of, of points. And I, I think about in your book, you're talking about the blind person finding the summit. Um, by, I think it was from your book. It might have been from Don Norman, who is um, an a innovation guy, because I'm reading both at the same time. A blind person finding a summit by just feeling to the where, the where the top, you know, stops going up, you know, where you stop going up, that's the top. But the question then becomes, what if the, the top is always changing? What if you have a dancing landscape where as soon as it's the top, then it falls and something else is the top? How do you respond to that? And the formal structures of yesterday can't respond to the dancing landscapes of today. And there's a great book by General Stanley McChrystal called Team of Teams, where he talks quite a bit about that, that we couldn't rely on command and control structures. We had to free people up to make decisions and have knowledge sharing from across organizations versus just directional siloed information sharing decision making. Well, I would say that we are now in the the, the, the dancingest landscape of all. I mean, the COVID crisis, it did a lot of terrible things, but one thing it's done is that it's it's really reset people's patterns. I mean, the way we shop and work and sell and mm -hmm. interact and eat and love and laugh, it's all changed. And so when you have a landscape shift that, that's that dramatic, when those patterns are broken, new ones have to replace them. And so I think it's a fool's bet to, to, to simply rely on the models of the past and expect the same results. So now it's not only dancing, but we all can affect the landscape to a degree. And it's changing so rapidly. I think our best thing we can do is develop strong skills in inventive thinking and creative problem solving, because I don't think there's a person out there that's going to that would say, yeah, I'm sure things are going to slow down. We're going to get to a really non, you know, steady state landscape. Like right. maybe COVID, that's over. But but I mean, the world of change is not, the rate of change is not slowing down. I mean, we're, we're in the fastest rate of change in, in the history of the world. And, and it's only going to increase, meaning that we only need to become more adept at dancing.
And one of the nice things about in your book you talk about as well as, and David Epstein does too, is the integration of skill sets and perspectives. Um, you know, going back to diversity, even diversity, not just being demographic diversity, but being professional or what we could call epistemic knowledge diversity, right? That we're integrating from across different perspectives in order to respond more quickly with greater agility to these dancing, changing landscapes. And that the traditional silos of organizations, you know, it's, it, it's, they're working against themselves because of those divisions between functional groups who can't share and, and help each other understand what the landscape is. Yeah, I, I think it just gets back to the point of if we think our job in, in life and work is to just simply do what we're told, put our head down, follow the rules and retire in 30 years with a gold watch. I don't think that's a good recipe today. Right. Maybe it was in 1950. But I think today what we really need is people that can think on their feet. We need people that can play the music, even though all the notes aren't on the page, you know, that, that can improvise, can adapt in real time, can, can use agility and pivot when needed. And, and I think that's really what, what it's all about. I wrote in the book about this concept that I've been playing around with called the 70-30 rule. Right. So the notion is this, we've all heard of the 80-20 rule, you know, 80% of our results come from 20% of our efforts, et cetera. Well, here's how I think about the 70-30 rule. If all you do over the next 12 months is what you already know right now, what your training dictates, what your experience suggests, you're likely only going to achieve about 70% of the results that you seek. So that 30%, that gap, think of that as the creativity gap that can only be uh, earned and achieved through, through using creative problem solving and bobbing and weaving through the changes and, and adapting to circumstances that are shifting. And, and here's the thing. I think that that compounds every year like interest. Right. So if you, if you, fall 30% short this year, you have a 70, it's still a passing letter grade. But what happens if you thir lose 30% again the next year or the year after that, or for five right. years in a row, you know what that looks like? That looks like Pan Am Airlines. That looks like Oldsmobile. And so I think it's really incumbent on us, both individually and organizationally, to close that 30% gap because then it starts to compound in our favor. And, and again, I, I, I mean that. I, I think that our skills are important. They're not everything. But if we, need to, if we really want to achieve our full potential, regardless of what, what, what craft we may be pursuing, I think we have to develop those creative skills. And I wonder, in your experience, can, can companies who want to become innovative, can they achieve innovation without transformation? Right? You know what I mean? So it's, to what extent does what we're talking about here, doing all these things, rely on organizations transforming um, the culture, the leadership orientation, the purpose and mission that they're espousing as, you know, why do we show up every day? Um, is it just to make a profit? Is that enough to accomplish what we're talking about here? Does it have to be driven from a deeper passion place, a purpose place to get people to be committed to taking these risks? I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. It sounds like the answer should be yes, but it's really not yes. Here's the thing. Creativity and innovation are, can be deployed for big, important goals like saving right. the planet, but they also can be deployed for really simple, small stuff and everywhere in between. So first of all, let's just quickly think about what innovation is because that's a messy term. Right. So I define it in the book as three different ways. Think of it all caps innovation. That's giant stuff that changes the world. That's the printing press or inventing the internet or penicillin. And these come along you know, every couple of years and they're humongous and they make the headlines. That's generally how we think of innovation. And anything below that doesn't count. You know, the light bulb, the, mo the moving uh, assembly line, et cetera. But one click beneath that, think of the word innovation with just a capital I and the rest lowercase. These are much more, you know, in terms of volume, instead of one every few years, every one of us could have two or three of these a year, let's say. And this is like the pretty big breakthrough, a new way to sell that drives your sales volume by 40%, a, right. a new way to serve customers that boosts customer loyalty, et cetera. And those don't make the cover of a magazine, but they're still pretty darn important. They make a career. But then one double click beneath that are my favorite, which is all lowercase the word innovation, or as I call them, big little breakthroughs. And these are like the, 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 uh, they're the underappreciated workhorse of innovation. These are the right. little things that really don't feel big and they don't make the cover of a magazine and they don't garner attention. But Harvard came out with a study that said 77% of the U.S. gross domestic product doesn't come from the, the sexy giant all caps innovations. It comes from those everyday innovations, those little all lowercase innovations. So back to your question, 
is it nice if a, if an organization transformed and had really good morals and principles and all this stuff? Sure. I'm not anti that, right. but you actually don't need to, to be innovative. In other words, innovation right. doesn't only count if it's a billion dollar idea. You can be innovative in a really tactical, small way right now, even if you're, uh, you know, a misguided, you know, uh, mission and values and all that. So I'm not saying that you should have bad values. I think you should have great values, but you don't need to transform in order to innovate. Quite the opposite. In fact, innovation is within the grasp of every one of us, every organization. And again, think about cultivating little baby innovations as opposed to these wild swing for the fence moonshots that that most of us think about with aligned with that word. It does remind me of, again, Don Norman, who I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's one of the people, he was a VP for Apple. He founded the term user experience. And I, I, I was lucky enough to have him come to one of my classes to speak to my grad students. And he was talking about radical versus incremental innovation. That radical is, you know, it was interesting that incremental innovation is often derived from doing research on user needs, right? So we can research and understand how to change things and fix things and improve things in small ways. Radical innovation, he wrote about, requires a fundamental change in meaning around how the thing is understood. Right. So the watch isn't just a timepiece, it's a status symbol. You know, it means something else. Or video gaming, um, you know, it comes to mean something else. So the shift in 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 radical information is not about researching your way out of it. It's about this other kind of meaning shift that occurs that leads to this transformation of the object into something else. Yeah, you know, so, uh, you know, authors like me or, you know, professors and such, you know, we, we tend to set up on our ivory towers and be like, you know, radical is good and in- incremental is bad and, you know, and you shoot for radical. And right. but from a pragmatic standpoint, I don't think that's the best approach generally. Right. Here's why. First of all, you know, a radical innovation generally requires a radical amount of risk and capital and all this other stuff. So when the stakes are that high, if you're betting your whole life on it in your company, most of us are not in the position to take that type of risk. So instead of doing, if we think that the only innovation that matters is radical, we just gravitate to do nothing. Second of all, it's besides the, the risk factor, when, when you, the best way to, to actually get big innovations is by cultivating small ones. And here's what I mean. So Da Vinci, his, his work about probably the most famous painting in the history of the universe is the Mona Lisa. But that wasn't Da Vinci's first painting. Call that a radical innovation. But but he, he first had to learn to paint. Right. He had to paint every day. He had to do lots of quote-unquote incremental, which sounds like a negative term. I think it's a great term. He did tons and tons of little breakthroughs, which ultimately enabled his biggest breakthrough. So if you really want a radical innovation, I think the best way to get there is by lots of little baby innovations. So you're building this skill set along the way. And again, sp- big little breakthroughs are, are, are accessible to all of us, regardless of our, our bank account or our you know, level of achievement or academic tenure or any of that other stuff. So I, I, I feel like instead of thinking of radical innovation, I look at that as, as some exclusive club that most of us, well, us don't qualify for. I like the, the working man and working woman's approach of everyday innovation, of big little breakthroughs. And, and I, I think we should remove the stigma and celebrate those. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny, but with you know, the ivory tower, I wish my school had one. We have a, <laughs> we have a clock tower. It's, it's kind of nice. Not ivory though, but the idea, you know, Education is probably the least innovative place in, in, in any industry, quite honestly. Um, speaking as an insider now for 12, you know, 25 years in education, you don't see a lot of innovation, um, incremental or otherwise. And I would even say, like, you know, like we're, we're, we're teaching classes online. That's innovative. I'm like, not survival. It really doesn't, you know, we're just, we're just taking a thing we did in the class and doing it online. I, I, and maybe innovation is in the eye of the beholder, um, what constitutes an innovation, you know, what do we need to see to make it innovation versus just, you know, a change, but, you know, so much of education is just the same model that it was in the 18th century today, you know, just maybe, brought forward today. I'm just speculating, but maybe because when we think about innovation, that only counts if it's radical that we just then gravitate to doing very little. So I would say, well, you know, even with, with you working in, in, in that context, you know, if I said, well, tell me about an innovation to change education, you, you think, gosh, I have to create something that's going to be like my, you know, my, my Magna Carta. Like that's so intimidating and overwhelming. But if I said, could you think of two little things you could change the next time you're with one student in one session, like teeny tiny things, I bet they'd start flowing like in two seconds. No, so, I have. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Perfect. So I think those innovations are are awesome. So let's let's again remove the stigma from small innovations. And and honestly, those little small ones do add up to big things and they're way less risky and way more accessible. Yeah, I'll just give you an example. So one of the things that we like to say at my school, it's a private business school, we need to, we should integrate arts and sciences and business. Yes, on board. Let's do that thing. 
um, one of the things that I did with a professor in marketing was we co-advised an intern in a project she was doing. An arts and sciences professor, me, a business professor, marketing, co-advising an intern, working on a project for a company, both giving our perspectives and our expertise. Cost nothing, was a lot of fun. I, we, we all learned something together and the student had a great experience. And when I suggested we continue to do that, we, we, not, nothing happened because everyone's stuck in trying to do curriculum reform, right? Those radical innovations can suck the oxygen out of the room because everyone's looking for the loon shot and fails to identify the assets that they, that they already have available. Right. So perfect, perfect example. You guys did this at a grassroots level. It didn't cost a bunch of money. You didn't need regulatory approval. Right. You know, you didn't have to work at no a No committee lab. meetings. No committee meetings. And it was great and beautiful. And you learned from each other and it was a better experience. So, you know, those are the types of innovations that I love because they are, we can all do those types of things. Yeah. It's unfortunate that they were distracted and it didn't continue, but, but good for you for, for doing that. I mean, I just love it. You know, bigger innovation in terms of education. I look at Khan Academy. Right. And so, you know, they had a basic insight that the classroom model should be inverted. In other words, think about it in a typical university setting, you know, 500 people show up for a lecture and they sit there passively listening to someone at the front of the room lecture on to, the, you know, one size fits all. You can't hit stop or replay. You just have to listen to this lecture. And then when you leave and go home back to where you live, now you're supposed to be active and participatory. So a Khan Academy concept was flip that around, right. record lectures from dynamic, terrific uh, lecturers, and then people watch those individually when they're not taking the time to be on campus. And that way you can start and stop them. You can replay them. If, if you missed it, you know, keep, keep going. It's a permanent asset. But then when you're actually together with 500 people, maybe you should be collaborative. Maybe the teacher's role isn't just to lecture, but to interact with students and help them learn. So, I mean, and they've seen dramatic results in terms of uh, educational outcomes right. based on that simple inversion. So I do think there's a lot of opportunity as do you, I know, uh, for, for uh, re reform in education. And, but rather than worrying so much about a big one, I would just, encourage folks to look for the little ones. Yeah, the flipped classroom is an interesting one that people have, you know, especially with the technological necessities of today, have started to latch on to, to a greater extent. And even there, like, you know, there's so much great content of videos online. Why do I, if I can use material that's available, do I even have to record the videos? You know, can I, can I direct students to the videos and then, you know, do other things? Right now, one of the things that I've been engaged in and following are people live streaming on Twitch. They're live streaming educational content for whomever shows up, including perhaps their students, on this for free platform where they're engaging with people from all over the world. I mean, it's really quite interesting, right, to see how um, the requirements of the moment have led to freedom to create, right? That we've lost, you know, the new normal is a lot. When you lose norms, those things no longer constrict you. So yeah, so true. That's beautifully said. By the way, it, it you know education is is involves teachers, but it also involves students. Right. And I think we as students, I'm 50 years old. I hope I'm still a student, but we should always be thinking about what can we do as a student also. One of them that made, was very famous was this MIT challenge where a guy in Vancouver in his apartment said, hey, I see that all the MIT courses are online, or at least most of them, and the curriculum and even some of the projects and final exams. Could I get an, could I get essentially pass an MIT computer science degree with never stepping foot on MIT's campus nor ever paying a dollar? And so he did this one-year sprint where he literally took every class remotely. He learned it all. He, he did it all upon himself, never interacted with anybody on MIT's campus. And he set up a metric on would he pass or whatever. And he essentially earned the learning value, not the, not the degree itself, but the learning value of having you know completed a four-year curriculum. Right. And so I know that's an extreme example, but I do think that it shouldn't only be responsible, the responsibility of, of education or educators to, to be the, the innovators. Why can't we as the students be innovators as well? Well, that's good he did that because he can't find parking around MIT. <laughs> it's like literally impossible. He could have oh, tried. True. It would have taken him four years to complete the degree just because of the parking time. <laughs> just because of the parking. Just because he can't find a place to park. It's like impossible. You know, it makes me think also one of the points you make in the book that I really appreciate is the assets, what I call assets development or assets-based, you know, development. There's a, a school of thought from Northwestern University called assets-based community development. That's where usually when people go in to help a community, they do it from a needs-based assessment. What's missing and how do we fill that? Assets-based is let's do an inventory of what skills and competencies and abilities we have and use that to build on the community development. And there's a lot in, in what I, I saw you writing about that was reminiscent about this assets-based approach, using what you, like the toothpaste, right? Using all the, all the 
toothpaste in the tube, using everything you have available before trying to then bring in things that you think you need. Yeah, I, I think that sometimes when we are uh, we get scrappy when we are using fewer resources, we actually drive our creativity further than if you had this you know massive amount of, of unlimited resources. I always like to say that if the amount of resources that you had equaled your level of creativity, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet, and sure. startups would be the <laughs> least creative. And we know the exact opposite is true. Right? Yeah, there's there's a real beauty in being scrappy. I, I, I talk a lot about MacGyver, one of my all time heroes. Right. And, you know, MacGyver in the show, he, like he he, he, could, he didn't have X-ray vision. He couldn't fly. He didn't carry a gun. He carried a roll of duct tape. But he always managed to get it done. He used his resourcefulness, his right. ingenuity, and that is a skill that again it can really become the great equalizer. I I, te- I speak to leaders and organizations around the world all the time, and they say, "Oh, I'd love to be more innovative," but and you just like wait for it, wait for it, right. and it's like I'm missing, and then there's a fill in the blank. I don't have enough money. I don't right. have enough time. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough team members, whatever. And and again, I just challenge people with great love and respect that, you know, by, by doubling down on our internal resources, by liberating our, our incredible power of creativity, that can make up for all the ex- exterior resources that you may be lacking. Right. And I know you also talk about Chopped, which I love that show as well. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a metaphor in there too about here's a basket of whatever it is. And you're looking at it going, you know, what do I do with it? And I, I, one could wonder if you gave them a week, right, to figure out what to do with all these ingredients, would you end up with a paralysis through analysis versus just read and react, you know? Yeah, I mean, one, one example of that, I, I was uh, studying music in college and I had a professor that would force me to remove strings from the instrument. Oh. So he, he would make me take off one, two, sometimes three strings from my guitar. And so you'd say, okay, well, your resources have been cut in half. Clearly, it's going to mess up your creativity. And but but a surprising and counterintuitive thing happened. When those strings were off, I could no longer rely on the patterns that I knew. So right. I was forced to solve musical problems in a fresh way. And as a result, it actually was expansive for my creative ability rather than restrictive. Yeah, it reminds me actually of a, of a Rubik's Cube, and I have one right here. Of the Rubik's and, Cube. Yeah, I do. But you know, it's funny. I feel like I, I can solve it, but I the only way I can solve it is because I know the pattern. And so I learned a pattern. There's books online, you know, or websites where there's a certain pattern you can do. And every single time you do that pattern, it will solve the Rubik's Cube. So if someone said to me, so you know how to solve the Rubik's Cube? I would say, I really don't think I, I know how. I can do it by replicating a pattern, but do I know how to do it? Somehow it feels, it doesn't feel as, as accurate of a description of my relationship with solving this thing than just replicating the pattern. I could see that. And, you know, I, I think back to education, you know, I, I have four kids, two older ones and two younger ones. And you know, I watched my older kids, you know, they, they'd study real hard for a test. They'd wrote, memorize stuff they didn't understand. Right. And they'd forget it two days later. Right. So how, how helpful is that? You know, whereas if you, you know, learning something to regurgitate it, to repeat someone else's pattern is one thing, but figuring stuff out for yourself, you know, understanding how to, how to, how to think and how to learn. I mean, those are the real skills that we need. Right. And a, a, a last point that I think is really important, I don't want to leave it out, is your emphasis on creativity rituals, right? That, you know, that you have a process through which you embed yourself in a moment. And as a sociologist, ritual, I know the importance of ritual. Can you talk a little bit about you know, how to construct and create your own, one's own, not just your own, but one's own creativity rituals to put your head in that kind of zone to not just your head, but your body, yourself in that zone to have that space to create? Yeah. So in, in the book, I, Big Little Breakthroughs, I cover um, the creative habits of people like Lady Gaga and Steven Spielberg and uh, Banksy, the artist. I mean, really cool people, right. but also, you know, more normal people uh, that, that are everyday people as well. And, and the, the truth is that creativity isn't just some magical, mythical gift. It's a skill that needs to be learned, just like playing tennis. You know, and the more you practice, the more you do the reps, the better that you get. Right. But in terms of getting into the right zone, I do something, I just literally five minutes a day. I mean, I don't spend hours and hours, five minutes a day. I do it every morning and it sets me up to be, to have a creative day. And I can share mine, but, but I, the key is people should do whatever ritual is right for them. The point is just having a ritual. When I was learning guitar, if I had a killer guitar lesson and I went and practiced for four hours in a row right after, but then I put the instrument down for six months, I don't remember anything. The way you get good at music is you practice a little bit every day. And the same is exactly true for creativity. So my ritual is I wake up, I take a couple deep breaths. I spend a little bit of time doing some gratitude and then I get after it. Here's what I do. First of all, 
they, in software engineering, they say, if you want to change the outputs, you got to change the inputs. So I spend one minute, literally one minute, just bathing in other people's creativity. Hmm. I might watch a YouTube video of a music concert. Oh. I might stare at a painting. I might read a poem out loud, but I just sort of allow myself to take in the creativity right. of others. Then I give myself a one minute creative challenge, like jumping jacks for your creativity. Hmm. I might say something like, what are four alternative uses for a pencil? Huh. Or, you know, if I had to win all the Olympic medals and I was, you know, beyond the age of qualification, what could I do? And again, the goal isn't to have work product. It's to just get your juices flowing. Right. I then do a little bit of a, um, a highlight reel. It's kind of a cool exercise I learned from a, a sports psychologist, but you know what a highlight reel is if you're watching, right. you know, the, yesterday's game. Well, mine does this. I spend about 30 seconds reflecting on a time in the past when I felt like I was really in the zone and really creative, which kind of tells your hmm. brain that you can do this. Right. But then I also spend the next 30 seconds thinking about a highlight reel from the future. Maybe it's me giving a great TED talk, or maybe it's me solving a really difficult problem. And so the combination of a reference that I, it can be done from historical perspective, right. and then leaning into what's future. So it's like a highlight reel of both going from the past into the future. That takes about a minute and it's wildly effective. Just kind of mm. gets me all situated. I'll do a couple other deep breathing exercises. I do a little chant, like, you know, a little rally and cry and I'm off to the races. So I, I cover it in the book, but, but the key here is whatever rituals work for you is the ones you should do. As long as you're doing something, kind of ground yourself and this is going to be a creative day, then you're well situated to get after it. Yeah. I, it's funny because I, I, I'm a pandemic guitarist. So I started, I, I finally decided I could learn how to play guitar. Awesome. Um, yeah. It's funny because, you know, throughout my life, I was like, you know, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I was finally like, well, now's the time to try to do that. I found out I can actually do that. And so it's, it's, you know, it's by doing creative things that push you outside of your normal routine comfort zone, it creates, it creates that feedback loop of, yes, you can do that. And yes, you can accomplish that. And, you know, the only limiting factor from you doing so often, or the main limiting factor is you, not the only one. There's all kinds of limitations we have at our time and our responsibilities, but ultimately the main limiting factor is ourselves telling us that we can't accomplish things, whether radical, big innovations or little, you know, big little breakthroughs. I mean, the good news though, is that creativity purely is a skill more than an, an imbued asset from the right. gods. So you were learning guitar and I got to believe that the first time you made an F chord, you're like, there's no way my fingers are ever going to do this. No way. And probably the second day you picked up the guitar, you didn't sound like Eddie Van Halen. But I bet if you practice deliberately for a year, you'd sound pretty darn good. Yeah. And creativity is exactly the same thing. It's funny. When we think about learning a language or learning to play guitar or learning to cook, we say, oh, of course, I'm going to learn. I'll make mistakes. It's not going to be perfect the first time. But with creativity, for some reason, we believe that we ought to be you know, the Mozart or Da Vinci of creativity on our first attempt. And I'm telling you, it's just a learned skill, the same way those other things are learned skills. And in any learned skill, you're sloppy at first. You have to get your bearings. You have to understand the concepts beneath it. You got to right. practice. Over time, it, it will become very apparent. Here's the only good news I'll just leave you with is that unlike learning a new language where you're starting from scratch, as human beings, we are built to be creative. That's our natural state. We're hardwired to think and act that way. So it's more about reconnecting with what you already have than it is learning something entirely new. In other words, it doesn't take years of discipline and sacrifice to be creative. Little tweaks to your environment, to your approach, to your mindset, to your tactics can yield very quick gains with respect to your creativity. I think it's a great place to stop. I really thank you very much. It's great to finally get a chance to chat with you one-on-one -on -one after reading your books, like your other books, which I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. We have The Road to, Trans the Road to Reinvention, right? As well as Hacking Innovation, which I really loved because especially with the hacker culture and the origins of that, you know, being a deviant to lead to innovation, definitely also along with Big Little Breakthroughs, the Road to Reinvention, as well as Hacking Innovation, also great books that folks can get as well. Well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure being with you. I have such great admiration for you and your work. And, and I just say, if anyone's interested in, in this topic, they want to dive deeper, they want to join me on a quest to make everyday people, everyday innovators, check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. You certainly can buy the book there if you want, but even if you don't, there's, there's an assessment tool that's free. There's a downloadable bunch of worksheets. There's a, there's a quick start guide. There's a whole toolkit that really kind of give you the assets to, to, to embrace your creativity and take it to the next level. So yeah, if you get a chance, check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. And for those who are listening, we'll make sure to have all of that on our show notes. So thank you very much, Josh Linkner. We want to thank Josh Linkner for taking 
the time to talk about his new book, Big Little Breakthroughs, as well as his professional journey. There was a lot to cover given how much he's done, and he's done a lot. So hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to find out more about Josh's work, companies, and books, please see our show notes for more details. You can also communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We always love hearing from you and enjoy having your feedback, as well as the different topics and ideas for future shows that you share. We are nearing 4,000 downloads, and we would really like to thank everyone for your support of the podcast and making this possible. We have a lot of fun doing it, and we are really glad you enjoyed it as much as we enjoy giving it to you. If you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, head over to our website and stay on top of all of the EXD news. You can also join the EXD page on LinkedIn to be part of the conversation. And with that, be safe, be well, take care, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design.